He says in verse 4, I want to read 4, 5, and 6, and then we're going to, we're going to talk a little. We're going to do a little bit of Bible study, kind of bringing us into this before we really get to it. But let me just read 4, 5, and 6, and I want you to pay close attention to what you read here. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted this this heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. I'm going to restate the beginning. It is impossible, or I'm sorry, and they have fallen away, and it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding up, holding Him up to contempt. For it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Those who have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away. Okay, I'll just be honest. This is a difficult passage. It's super difficult. Um, and it's not, it's been super difficult for about 1900 years. This is one of the most controversial verses, passages in the Bible. Um, it's one that has splitted, split churches into different denominations. It's one that even within denominations, people can't agree on some of the details within it. There's a lot going on in this verse. And he speaks of an impossibility. An impossibility of restoring someone who has fallen away. Assumedly a Christian, a believer... So, to just kind of keep it in our minds, the two bigger ways to look at this is, is the writer of Hebrews explaining that a Christian who has been born again, meaning they've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, can completely walk away from God. Can they, as we would think of it, I don't like the term or the phrase, lose their salvation. Could someone who is born again by the Spirit of God lose their salvation and never be restored back to God? Or is he doing something else? And there's a lot of different ors that we could go over, and I don't have time to go over all the different ones here. Um, but another viewpoint is that he's speaking about those who look like Christians who experience, uh, who have tasted some of that which Christians experience, the Word, the Spirit, the power of God. But they have walked away or fallen away. Are these the ones that cannot be restored? Now you're probably already thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. Help me out here. Well, here's our Bible study. I've got a couple things I want us to make sure we understand. Okay? You got your Bible? Alright, open it to, uh, to John. 
We got a few places to go here. Go to John. I got we got there's just things we have to know before we can actually consider this passage. Go to John chapter 10. Starting in verse 27. And as much as I'd love to read whole portions here, we don't. I don't have time because I've got so much I want us to look at. John 10 and verse 27 and 28. Jesus is speaking and making something very clear. And it's something that Scripture makes very clear. And what is it? It's about security. It's about security... Of those who are in Christ. And I don't mean security as in like physical security. Like you're going to have good things are going to happen. Or you're going to be secure. You're going to be kept from danger or distress or suffering if you're in Christ. I mean eternally. If you are in Christ. If you have been born again. You are eternally secure in Christ. I don't like this phrase either. But so we understand it. You will not lose your salvation. Or a term I don't like even more than that is once saved, always saved. Okay? Now the premises behind those statements, you cannot lose your salvation, once saved, always saved. The truth behind them are are rock solid, 100% correct. And this is what I want us to see in a few passages. Jesus says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. So if Jesus speaks of a sheep, he speaks of his disciples. He speaks of his brothers and sisters. He speaks of the children of God. He speaks of Christians. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The characteristic of a sheep, of Jesus' sheep, is that they hear his voice, they know him, or he knows them, and they follow me. Now, Jesus knowing them is pretty important, especially when you consider Matthew 7. What does Jesus say to those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? And he says, get away from me. I never knew you. Jesus knows his sheep. Like if you're going to check your cattle, you know number 12 is gone, right? You you know your life. Jesus knows his sheep. But he's known them eternally. He says, I give them eternal life. And they will never, never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's security. If you've held a child and tried to make them feel secure... You, you hold them close and squeeze them so that they feel like at that time, what? 
nothing can happen to them. The sheep of Christ are in His hands and nothing can happen to them. Spiritually, eternally. I'm not saying you can't suffer while in Christ, while on this earth. Know that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about being a sheep. Now, um, we'll come back to John, but go to Romans. Chapter 8. Verse 29. Uh, we'll start at 28. Romans 8, 28. I'm going to be specific here, and I want you to hear the words, hear this chain, hear this connection. And we know that for those who love God, okay, those who love God, that might be a sheep, right? Those who love God... All things work together for good. For who? For those who are called according to his purpose. Remember, Jesus says, my sheep, what? Hear my voice. So those who are called according to whose purpose? According to God's purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're talking about Jesus. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, and if you have an understanding of God's election and predestination, you realize that that happened before he even wrote, or before he even hung the moon and the stars, before he created the world. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And the sheep hear his voice, right? And those whom he called... He also justified. He saved. He declared innocent. He said no longer guilty in sin, but innocent in Christ. So he's not only predestined. He's not only called. He's also justified. And those whom he has justified, he also glorified. Glorification in Christ is the day you see Jesus. So... Here, here the, here's what this says. If you have been called by Jesus, if you are a sheep, you heard his voice and you responded to his call. If he called you, he had predestined you. If he had predestined you and called you, he has justified you. And if he justified you, he's not going to let you out of his hands, but he is going to keep you until the day that you see him. Look what he says in verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he holds his sheep in his hands. Uh, in in our new members class, we looked at 
the doctrine in our statement of faith on the perseverance of the saints. Basically, the perseverance of the saints, the doctrine states that a true believer will endure to the end. And that, that title, perseverance, has it's, it's a 600-year-old phrase. But for a saint to persevere, a saint is preserved by God. Kept by God. And no one can snatch them out of his hands. Here's what I want you to understand. As we are in Hebrews 6. If you are in Christ. You will be in Christ for eternity. It's not. And the reason why. That is eternally secure is because your salvation was not dependent upon you. It was dependent upon God. God God the Father and His will. God the Son and His life and sacrifice. And God the Spirit and His applying, sealing you, guaranteeing you, making you into a new creation. You are secure because of God, not because of what you've done. That is the biblical truth for all who are in Christ. Now, many people read Hebrews 6 and say, no, that's not true. So we've got to understand when we read something in Scripture and it tends to contradict other parts of Scripture, then we have to figure out Or we have to figure out where we're wrong in our understanding. Or we get to a point, and we've talked about this in our new members class, that there might be two truths in Scripture that your little finite brain cannot comprehend, cannot bring them together, because the person who has created those two truths, God himself, is infinite in his wisdom and his power. And so when we get to something in Scripture that says, that doesn't really fit with everything else I know, well, number one, we better be in prayer and ask the Lord to help us, whether in humility or in wisdom and discernment. So that's the first one, and I promise I'm not going to take this long on Hebrews 6. We'll spend more time in making sure we understand these things. The second thing I also want you to understand that Scripture is very clear. So Scripture is very clear about the security of those who are in Christ. But Scripture is also very clear and gives many warnings about false security. False security. Now, you listen. I would say this is one of the biggest issues in American Christianity today. False security. And there's many fingers to point, many people to blame, but the biggest is pastors, is elders, leaders in churches who have desired to give people, I don't want to say give them false hope, but for the sake of, uh, I, I can't go down that rabbit hole, but To make it easy. To make Christianity easy, we have given hundreds, 
thousands, if not millions, false hope in their security in Christ. Because we made salvation so easy. When Jesus doesn't. Jesus does not make Christianity easy. To be in Christ, to follow Christ, do you know what he says you must do? Die. If you were to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Better to lose your life and gain your soul than lose your soul and gain this life. So, false false security is also taught much of, not just of how it might happen or that it happens or when it happens, but we see believers in the scriptures who turn out not to be believers. And so there is it there is eternal security that you can know you have in Christ, but beware you might believe in vain, which is just biblical language to believe in vain. So, go back to John. John 6. Just one verse in John 6. 66. Verse 66. John chapter 6, verse 66. Jesus had just spoken, given a sermon, and it says, After this, when he had finished, many of his disciples, meaning people who followed him, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And the reason why we or I can't read it all. The reason why they did is because they didn't like what he said. They believed, they followed, but then at some point they said, "I'm out." So they had no security. They were not in Christ. They were not born again. They were not um of God, a sheep, they were gone. Now look a couple pages over, John chapter 8. Verse 31. Verse 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, Oh, okay, we have belief. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now look at verse 44. Same crowd. You're just going to have to trust me on that or go home and read it the rest of the chapter later. Same crowd, same conversation. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. To these people who have believed. And then in verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil. 
Your will is to do your father's desires, the devil's desires. We had people who had belief. And then minutes later, Jesus calls out their unbelief. He calls out their sin. He calls out the fact that they are not actually disciples, but fought, but but sons and daughters of the devil. Now look at John 15. So Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, right? There were 13 in the room. Now there's only 12. Who left? Judas. Judas had just walked out of the building. And look what Jesus says in John 15 verses 1 and 2. I will probably read a little bit more than that. He says, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. So those who are truly in Christ abide. And they abide to the end. Judas did not abide and he did not endure to the end. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Judas was just an example of that. Now one more place. Flip all the way to the end. First John. First John. Chapter 2. Verse 18. First John, all the way to the end of the scriptures, before you get to Revelation. First John, chapter 2, verse 18. Children, speaking to believers... It is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So I want you to understand there are, we could say two types of, we won't confuse you that much. Within the body that gather together Sunday by Sunday, 
There are those who have security, and there are those who don't. And those who don't typically don't know that they don't have security. They've been deceived by themselves. I pray they've not been deceived by me or my teaching or anyone else in the church. But there are definitely those who are born again in Christ, within the body of Christ, within the local assembly, and there are those who are not. Uh, what's the difference? Supernatural. Christianity is not about a life decision, a choice, like the disciples in John 6 who heard what they liked in one place, decided to believe, and then when they didn't hear what they liked, they decided to leave. They knew nothing of the divine. They knew nothing of the supernatural. They knew nothing of God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone has been born again, their relationship with sin looks different than what it used to. If anyone is in Christ, you don't act the same. You don't talk the same. You might not even walk the same Your heart has changed. Your desires have changed. Your mind has changed. Because you have been born again by the Spirit of God. And by being born again by the Spirit of God, being covered by the blood of Christ, you forever will be in Christ. And the Spirit of God is your guarantee. Ephesians says the Spirit of God is your down payment for your inheritance that you will have for eternity. Now back to the warning. Um, back to the warning. Knowing that if you are a Christian born again by the Spirit of God, if you have been given wisdom and knowledge from on high, if you have the Holy Spirit of God in you, you cannot fall away from the living God. Now, here's what we know about what the author of Hebrews knows. He knows that these people... Look at verse... Let's just look at it. Verse 9 of chapter 6 in Hebrews, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He is very confident that they are in Christ. But he is very concerned about their slumber. He is very concerned 
that they have become sluggish, as he mentioned in chapter 5, verse 11. Sluggish or dull of hearing. And so he gives this warning and says that those who have been enlightened in verse 4, those who have, have tasted the heavenly gift, those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, those who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Because they are crucifying Jesus again. They are holding Him to public shame because they have fallen away after being enlightened, after tasting, after sharing in the Holy Spirit. Now, I was reading, and if you're thinking, that doesn't make any sense, amen. I was reading uh, Spurgeon to prepare for this, and he said something interesting. He said, verses 4, 5, and 6, someone fallen away who has been enlightened, who has tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, and tasted the goodness of the word of the coming, the powers of the ages, no one has actually ever done it. You have to look at verse 4 and 5 and say, is this describing someone born again? Or is it someone who has only shared in what the people who are born again have? I don't know. I'll just be honest. Because there has been 600 years of debate on these two passages, which one it is. But as Spurgeon said, and as Scripture has said, if verses 4 and 5 are describing a true believer, this has actually never happened. And this is a warning to this audience to say, you need to wake up. You're falling asleep. And if you fall away, Jesus has already been crucified once. He can't be crucified again. Or, he's saying, you haven't truly experienced to the fullness the heavenly gift and shared in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But you have actually received some from it. Sunday by Sunday, you come and you taste a bit, but yet still sit in unbelief. And if that is his perspective... He says, you better wake up. Because he kind of helps us out in verses 7 and 8. He gives us an agricultural example, illustration, which are very helpful. Now, before I read it, let me just put it in your mind. Imagine you're a landowner, and you have four, uh, 40 acres on this side, 40 acres on that side. And they're ne next to each other. And you have the intention of raising crop in both uh, both pads, 40 here and 40 here. You, cult, you, you till up, you get it ready. The rain comes, God brings rain and rains down because your crops need rain. And you look into the field on the, the 40 on the left and you see a beautiful crop that you can harvest. 
and use. Fruit comes from that field. And then you look at the other field and you see thorns and thistles. Both received the rain from God. One produced fruit, the other produced thorns and thistles. So let's let's just look at it, read it. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if he bears thorns and thistles, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. You look at your two, your two, your two sets of 40 acres there. One provides fruit and the other provides thorns and thistles. What do you have to do with that one? He, he says it's useless and it just needs to be burned. Now, as we think about this, and I basically tell you I'm not sure of the intricacies of this section, I do know this, and I've, I've held on to this phrase for a long time and will for the rest of my life. I've heard Alistair Begg say something that is very freeing for a student of Scripture. And it is that the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. So, does that mean the not so plain things are not important? Not at all. But we need to make sure that we understand and know what is plain. And so... Here's what I want you to understand that is plain in this passage. And I am finishing up. The plain things in this passage is that these are Christians. They're professing Christians. Let me just say that. Meaning they say they are Christians. Like we do. They say it. We also know that they're dull of hearing. They've become immature. And now we also know that the author says, I am concerned for you. I have eternal concern for you. I am concerned. Think back through the rest of this book. How it started in chapter 2. What's he concerned of? That they will drift. That they're in danger of not escaping the wrath of God. What about in verse chapter 3? He has concern for these professing Christians, these professing believers, that they might not enter in the kingdom of God like the Israelites did in the wilderness. And I think his illustration in the the two fields is to show there's one of two ways for this to end. 
to receive the blessing of God or the curse of God. So we've got to stop and think for yourself. You've got to think about these things for yourself. As he began in chapter 5, verse 11, in the beginning of the warning, here's the questions you have to answer to yourself. Are you spiritually immature? If you are someone who calls yourself Christian, are you immature? Are you dull of hearing? Are you slow in understanding? The second question you have to ask, what do you produce? When God looks at your church attendance, your Bible reading, your prayer, that's the rain that he that falls down upon you. When he looks at who you are as a professing Christian, does he see crop or does he see thorn and thistles? Are you growing in your understanding and maturity in Christ? And do you produce the fruit of the Spirit? Those are the questions you have to answer. Because the reality is, is if you cannot answer those two questions in a positive, if you're unsure about your maturity and your fruit, then you might be unsure about your security in Christ. Now, I've got plenty of other things to say, but I just want us to read the last few verses here to show us our response, regardless of where we fall or how we answer those questions. Verse 11. Now, I have to say this. If your questions, your answers to those questions are unsure or they're even, no, I am not mature in Christ, or I know that there are only thorn and thistles that are produced in me, not fruit of the Spirit, not fruit for the kingdom of God, then the first thing you need to do is believe in Jesus and repent of your sins. First and foremost. Put your faith in Christ. Turn from your sin. But then, the second and third step, verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He just says, I want you to take your hope of eternal security, of assurance of your Unity with Christ. I want you to take it seriously. We take a lot of things in this world seriously. But if you are a professing Christian, do you take seriously 
things that are eternal? Do you take seriously the fact that you might be in danger if you are found sluggish, dull? Earnestness just means be serious. He says we desire, and this is why he says this. This guy's a pastor. This guy's a pastor. He goes, I desire that you're serious about it because I don't want you to be burnt up. I don't want you to be full of thorns and thistles. I don't want you to drift. I desire that you show earnestness about a hope of the end, of having full assurance of knowing that you are in Christ. Verse 12, he says, so that you may not be sluggish. Same word he started with in chapter 5, verse 11. And how does he say do that? Really simple. Don't be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We said, we used that word uh, imitate last night to our kids. And they're like, what's that mean? And we said, it's like looking in a mirror. You're doing that which is is being done in front of you. If someone is doing something in front of you, you imitate it. If they raise your hands, you raise your hands. If they live by faith and in steadfast endurance, imitate them. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Do as I do as I do what Christ does. Live by faith. And here's, I think, probably the harder. He could just say be faithful or live by faith. But he says have patience. Or steadfast endurance. If we didn't have to wait, we wouldn't need assurance. If there wasn't a gap in time, there wouldn't be any need of hope. Some of you have... 60, 70 years left. Some of you might have a day left. But you need hope. You need assurance that can last a day or 60 years. And the only way that happens is by the divine, the supernatural, the blood of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the new birth, only in those things, by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ, can you be assured of hope for tomorrow or 60 years from now. Next week we'll get to talk about something a little bit more positive as we see how God keeps His promises. Because for those who imitate faith and patience inherit God's promises. Inherit God's promises. Let's pray.